Hi everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. So today I'm very excited to talk about a new paper that the CNA Corporation has called Nuclear Weapons and Coercive Escalation in Regional Conflicts, Lessons from North Korea and Pakistan. And today I have the author of this paper on the line. And um, first, welcome to the show, Dr. Meyer Lee. Well, well thank you, Chelsea. It's, it's, it's great to be talking to you. And Dr. Meyerly is a senior research scientist at CNA Corporation's Center for Strategic Studies, just so our listeners know. And also, I would like everyone to know that CNA Corporation is a nonprofit research analysis organization, and it's located in Arlington, Virginia. And CNA is not an acronym. It's correctly referenced as CNA Corporation. So why don't we start off with talking about a brief history of how this report came about, Dr. Meyerly? Well, yes, um, we do a lot of work for, for the Navy, um, and so the Navy was very interested in uh, nuclear deterrence and the, the future of, of, of nuclear weapons, and they were very interested in some of the uh, kind of different kinds of questions that people aren't really asking. Um, so we got into this issue of, you know, how nuclear weapons can be used sort of to coerce other countries and states sort of in the, the second nuclear age, you know, after the end of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, now, like a lot more countries are now getting nuclear weapons, they're doing different things with those nuclear weapons. They have different doctrines, different approaches. They think about those nuclear weapons differently. Um, that's leading to a lot of different kinds of dynamics between these countries, and and so we wanted to explore some of those issues. And so we we hit upon this idea of of coercion. I kind of started with a discussion about some of the problems that we faced with North Korea, um, and also some of the things that, that Pakistan has been doing since it tested its nuclear weapons in 1998. And so we just kind of started looking at those issues and pulling the thread, and uh, we ended up kind of with this with this study. So. so, I mean, I know there's been this long debate over the idea of the possession of nuclear weapons, and if it, one, escalates a conflict, or two, if it de-escalates a conflict. So maybe to start out with, we can look at this in the cases of India and Pakistan. Sure. Um, well, you know, India tested its first nuclear device in 1974, um, and at that time, you know, it didn't have a whole very big effect on the relations between the two countries because it wasn't really a usable nuclear device. It wasn't until about 1998 when India tested uh, a much more advanced nuclear device and then not very long after, the, the Pakistan tested its nuclear weapons, that really nuclear weapons kind of became a big issue uh, in South Asia on the Indian subcontinent between India and, India and Pakistan. Um, and, you know, just pretty much within a year, almost within a year of Pakistan testing its, its nuclear weapons in 1998, India and Pakistan were fighting a war over Kashmir, which actually began with, um, with the Pakistani military actually launching these kind of limited ground insurgents into... Indian Kashmir, which ended up in this limited war between the two countries. So in that kind of situation, it's like Pakistan got into the weapons, and then they thought, well, now we can actually do something because the Indians won't respond militarily because they're worried about our nuclear deterrent. And so they thought it, they thought it like opened up some space for them to act militarily, kind of in, in a limited fashion. So actually, possession of nuclear weapons by Pakistan in the early years seemed to have actually been escalatory. It kind of contributed to greater escalation. Um, but then, but then, uh, say in 2001, there was a big terrorist attack on India's parliament, almost wiped out all of India's leadership. And then India threatened to attack Pakistan and invade and, and, and uh, launch all these military strikes. But in that situation, it seemed like India was much more cautious and actually ended up 
not striking. And so in that situation, it seems like Pakistan's nuclear deterrent was successful in sort of de-escalating that type situation. So when you look at India and Pakistan since 1998, you see this evidence that it leads to greater escalation, like in the war that they fought in 1999. But then when it push really comes to shove and you're dealing with almost like a major war type situation, nuclear weapons were actually pretty effective at stopping India and preventing any kind of major war. So you see evidence for both sides uh, in, in this kind of uh, situation. So that's why a lot of people talk about the subcontinent that they, they, they see it as very complex, and nuclear weapons have a variety of different kinds of effects. And then that same question, how about looking at North Korea's possession of nuclear weapons? And of course, there's this huge rift between South Korea. How has that played out? Well, um, so, the, so the situation on the Korean Peninsula is a little bit different in terms of the dynamic. And, um, you know, North Korea is not nearly as far along in terms of its nuclear capabilities. I mean, the Pakistan has the fastest growing nuclear weapons arsenal and, and nuclear weapons capability really of any country in the world in terms of how fast it's growing. Uh, North Korea isn't growing quite as fast and they're not nearly as advanced. They have only some sort of rudimentary nuclear devices. It's not really certain whether they can put those devices on a missile or not. Um, and it's not sure whether they can put it on an aircraft and deliver it or not. So, you know, North Korea's nuclear capability is not nearly as advanced. It's much more ambiguous. Um, but it still has a, a role to play, you know, in, in the conflict because, you know, they could launch, say, a dirty bomb attack uh, or something like that. And there's a certain ambiguity of what their capability really is. And then when you look at the shadow of the future as they, you know, as they build more missiles, as they develop their warheads, we're also looking to the future and, and becoming a lot more concerned about, about North Korea. Um, but, you know, nuclear weapons are a huge deal between India and Pakistan, a little bit less uh, uh, of an impact on the North Korea, South Korea type situation, but they're still very important, especially, you know, if, if North Korea were able to get a long-range missile and hold the United States at risk, uh, then that would certainly fundamentally change the dynamic between the two countries. But since, you know, the since North Korea started to acquire nuclear weapons, started to acquire kind of a rudimentary nuclear deterrent, you know, we've seen, you know, some, you know, escalation in some of their provocations and attacks against South Korea. So we talk in the study about these, these sort of the sinking of a South Korean uh, frigate, the, the artillery strikes on, on like uh, islands that were disputed between North Korea and South Korea. And, you know, there's a fair amount of evidence to see that, you know, the North Koreans think they can do these sorts of things because they have a nuclear deterrent and a conventional deterrent that prevents South Korea and the United States from really responding to these kinds of attacks. So building on that point, the other element of a country possess possessing nuclear capability, it can play an extremely major role in how that country is perceived in the international scene. And I was wondering if we could yeah. look at that a little bit. Um, so, like, what are the benefits and what are the damages to a country in the international scene um, if they hold nuclear weapons, for instance? Well... There are certainly a lot of benefits to getting nuclear weapons, and, and the benefits seem to be more than the, the costs in a lot of situations. I mean, with North Korea, with Pakistan, I mean, there's a reason why they are intensely pursuing nuclear weapons, because there's a lot to be gained from them having those weapons. Um, and there are some costs, it seems like, too, but the benefits seem to outweigh those. So if you look at, at Pakistan, I mean, it's a it's a... And like North Korea, these are relatively small countries compared to the people they're, they're arrayed against. So 
Pakistan is a relatively small country militarily compared to India. India is a much larger country. They have a lot more resources. They have a much larger military, a lot more capabilities, a lot bigger air force, a bigger navy. So when it comes to a, a war between India and Pakistan in a, in a conventional kind of conflict, the Indians are going to win that conflict you know, in most situations. And so Pakistanis have a very strong incentive to get nuclear weapons to deter this much larger power that they have next door. And it's the same case with North Korea. I mean, the South Koreans have a much more capable military. It's not necessarily larger by the number of people, but they have a lot more aircraft, a lot more sophisticated capabilities, and then they have the United States standing behind them as well because we're their ally. And so the North Koreans are arrayed against the military forces that dwarf them. And they can never hope to win any conventional war against South Korea, much less against South Korea and the United States and Japan and so forth. So there's a really strong incentive for them to get those nuclear weapons. Um, and then, you know, when you look at, um, and that's like in the security sphere, you know, when you just think about hard security. But also when you look at how the countries are perceived. So if you think about Pakistan has also gotten nuclear weapons and it's given them a certain status. I mean, it's almost, it's almost like it's also made them, uh, how should you say, nefarious as well, but the fact that they have these nuclear weapons gives them a certain leverage with the United States that they never had in the past. So, um, you know, we're very worried about Pakistan falling apart and collapsing. We're very worried about it becoming a failed state. And so we are, you know, giving billions of dollars in aid to them every single year and maintaining our relationship with Pakistan despite their, you know, support to the Taliban and all these insurgent groups in Afghanistan and all these problems that we have with Pakistan. We don't want to break the relationship. We want to continue funding our programs with them because we're so worried that if the country falls apart, what will happen to the nuclear weapons? Mm -hmm. And so that's given them a huge amount of leverage with us. And the North Koreans pull that string as well. So now that they have nuclear weapons, we're really worried about, you know, what if we engaged in regime change against North Korea? What if we attacked them militarily? What if something happened and the country fell apart? What would happen to the nuclear weapons? And so now we're invested in the stability of North Korea because we're concerned about what would happen to those nuclear weapons. Um, and then if you look at a country like India, it's a little bit different kind of situation when it comes to like its status and how it's perceived. With India, they got those nuclear weapons, and now India is perceived more as a great power than it was in the past, or at least that's what they believe. And it's given them a certain kind of positive status in the international community. We don't like to think of it that way. We refuse to believe that, but I think that's the reality of what has truly happened. And the Iranians also are acquiring nuclear weapons for that, for that reason as well. And so countries get different benefits from nuclear weapons when it comes to security, when it comes to the, their leverage with great powers, when it comes to their status and things like that. Um, but as far as the costs, I mean, we like to impose costs in the form of sanctions. So the Indians and Pakistanis, they tested those bombs in 1998. We slapped sanctions on them. But those sanctions were nothing probably compared to what they gained. Um, and we're, we're sanctioning Iran right now. We think that's working, and maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. Um, but then you also have to think about that in the context of all these other benefits that accrue from those weapons. And there's always this debate about how much the sanctions actually affect those that are being sanctioned in comparison to the general population of that said country. So as you said, the sanctions still kind of one of those things that it's to be seen how much they actually impact the development of weapons and say in the case of Iran. Um, when yeah. looking at, Oh, go ahead. No, please continue. So when looking at the cases of North Korea and Pakistan, how does the possession of these nuclear weapons lend to coercive leverage? Well, there's a, there's a fair amount of evidence to, to suggest that, you know, a country like say Pakistan, you know, they get these nuclear weapons, 
and they're a smaller power conventionally. So in, in normal circumstances, they wouldn't be supporting you know, a lot of terrorist groups inside Kashmir or launching limited military strikes against India and Kashmir because the Indians could you know, launch a war against them like they did in, say, 1965 when India and Pakistan fought a war. And the Indian military basically just surged across the border into Pakistan and held Pakistan's major cities, including its capital, at risk. Because, you know, the, the, capital, the major cities of Pakistan are, you know, very close to the Indian border and to India's major military formations. So without those <clears throat> nuclear weapons, you know, a country like Pakistan can probe, you know, attack India in these, in these ways over a disputed border like Kashmir. They can support these terrorist groups and constantly provoke a large country like India. And sooner or later, that country is going to respond militarily. And without those nuclear weapons, they're going to be, and find themselves in a war and they could very, very quickly, that could lead to, to defeat to them. Um, so when they get these nuclear weapons, it provides a certain amount of protection against a major attack by a country like India. And it seems to open up a certain space at the lower bounds of the warfare spectrum, as we like to say, for them to engage in probing attacks, support terrorist groups, and things like that, because then they can say, what are you going to do? Are you going to attack us? Well, that's too risky. We have nuclear weapons. We could end up in a nuclear war right now. And so it seems to open up a certain amount of space at the lower ends. And so these countries like India and even us, say, against China and, and Russia and the Ukraine, we find ourselves in a difficult situation. We want to respond to what we, what we perceive as aggression, but the risks are so huge when you're dealing with a nuclear power that we find ourselves just not doing anything at all and just backing off and, and, and sort of uh, you know, giving little concessions here and there uh, against these attacks and acts of coercion because we're so worried uh, about those nuclear weapons, about the situation escalating beyond our control into a nuclear-type conflict. So that's, how, that's what we mean when we talk about coercion uh, and, the re and the relationship between nuclear weapons and coercion. I mean, you asked in the beginning about the study, like, where did the study begin? What, you know, how did we kind of get to this study? And the study kind of began with this question of, well, hey, can a country get nuclear weapons and then use it to threaten another country? And when you look at the examples, there aren't really any examples of that, of a country saying, we have nukes, and if you don't do A, then we're going to nuke you. And, and that doesn't, there's not a lot of examples of that. I don't think there are hardly any examples of that. But there are examples of countries acquiring nuclear weapons that gives them a certain deterrent, and then feeling that they have some shield behind which to engage in these low-level attacks, low-level pinpricks. And so the study ended up with saying, well, what is, what is coercion? Under the nuclear umbrella, well, that's what it is. That, that, what's what I just described to you right there. And, and then so, you know, how do you think about that? How do you um, develop options to deal with that? Um, and they're not nuclear options. You know, we, you know if, the, if the Russians go into Ukraine, you know, engaging proxy warfare and infiltration, and even if they're uh, transferring sophisticated, you know, air defense systems to their proxies in Ukraine and all these sorts of things, that's still not cause for us to start using nuclear weapons or to threaten nuclear weapons. And so it's the constant testing of our thresholds, the constant testing of our red lines by a country that has nuclear weapons and is counting on us to be very cautious because of that fact. Um, so, so where does this leave countries then? Because what you described, it almost seems like two countries that possess nuclear weapons, someone, one side does something that the other side doesn't like, but the other side, of course, doesn't want to retaliate in a way they might if the other country didn't have nuclear weapons, you kind of end up with this stalemate. And so you were mentioning different options of dealing with that. And I know that your report looks into these ideas of pursuing options for limited, limited offense um, action. And 
you know, putting aside traditional military, defensive military procedures for different procedures. So what kind of procedures are available for these countries to deal with other countries that have nuclear weapons? Well, I mean, so you see like a, a, you see like what Russia is doing in Ukraine. I mean, they are, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing these, these, these people in kind of undercover. They're denying any involvement. They're transferring all these weapons and technologies uh, to, these, to these proxies in order to sort of slowly take over, you know, these Russian-speaking areas of, of, of Ukraine. And, you know, you know and, and at the same time, some of their military leaders are, you know, writing about, you know, testing the boundaries of war versus peace. And so it seems from what they're doing that they're, they're testing our boundaries, they're testing our red lines, just seeing what we can do. And, uh, and they have a different perspective on warfare. I mean, it's, it's, for the United States, we tend to think of war as either we're at war and it's shock and awe and it's major strikes and we're all in, you know, according to our military doctrine in the different phases of war. It's, you know, it's like phase three, it's like, we're, you know, it's major war. I mean, we don't, we don't hold anything back. Um, that's kind of the American way of war, the American military doctrine. So either we're all in, it's regime change, it's completely destroying a country's military forces through overwhelming use of force, or we're not going to war at all, you know. And, and for the Russians, what the Russians are doing, in some extent, though a much lesser extent, what China has been doing, and certainly what Pakistan has been doing is India, and what we see with these provocations by North Korea, is that they're probing the boundaries of the lower ends of the warfare spectrum. They're engaging in little acts of war, limited attacks, limited strikes, limited offensives. Um, and they think of that as war. But, you know, it's, it's not, you know, war is on or war is off. It's, it's kind of it's a spectrum and a, and a continuum. Um, and, but we don't think of it that way. You know, we think of it either we've been attacked and we go to war or we just don't. And so when we're faced with these little attacks, we don't, we're not sure what to do about it. And so we tend to act on the side of restraint and we tend to not respond. And that, you know, I think has encouraged some further kind of attacks by these countries. And Russia is pushing into Ukraine and pushing into other places because they think that we're not going to respond and we're not going to push back. Um, and so when we think about how we design some of our military capabilities, maybe we need to think, well, yes, we need nuclear weapons, so we're, you know, we're investing in a new, gen you know, in, a, uh, in the Ohio replacement program, which is, you know, a new generation of nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons submarines, and you know, we may be, you know, modernizing our, you know, our intercontinental ballistic missiles and so forth. So we're investing in our strategic nuclear deterrent, and we're investing very heavily in our high-end conventional capabilities, you know, our ability to fight like a major war with China. Um, but are we thinking about, you know, what if the Chinese, you know, or attack some, some piece of our forces in some part of the South China Sea and they keep it limited, how are we going to respond? Do we have the capabilities that we need to respond? Um, you know, smaller ships, uh, larger numbers of smaller ships, certain kinds of aircraft. You know, can we use, you know, unmanned aerial, aerial vehicles in a way that allows us to respond militarily in a limited area, but, but, but not in a way that would escalate to some sort of major war with a country like China or Russia or North Korea? so that we can respond militarily to these limited strikes, but not find ourselves in a major kind of war-type situation. And, um, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't usually think about conflict that way, um, but, that, but I think we, we need to because our adversaries are thinking about it that way, and they see that as a weakness on our part, uh, and, and, they're, and they seem to be exploiting it. And they probably will kind of going forward as more countries acquire nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation continues, I think you're likely to see more of that. You know, war doesn't go away just because there's nuclear weapons floating around. You know, that's what people said in the Cold War. 
with nuclear weapons, no more war. Well, that's not really the case. You know, war, war will always find a way, as, as people like to say, and it's finding its way kind of at, this, at these lower levels, and we need to be able to deal with that. And so do you see as more and more countries do acquire nuclear weapons capabilities that this is almost the future of warfare, these tiny offensives and, like you said, the use of drones and, and different new technology that's coming out. So it's not full-on war, per se, like all men, men on the ground and so forth, but it's these little tiny acts of what I guess could be considered war or defenses or offenses. I mean, do you see this as the future of warfare in the world? Well, it's certainly part of the future. I mean, it's, um, you know, is it the future? Hard to say. I mean, you know, when it comes to warfare, like, there are many different futures, and there are different sorts of conflicts that we may find ourselves in, you know, and some are more likely than others. Um, but, you know, the United States military has to prepare for all those different contingencies. So we got to prepare for a potential war with China, even though we may never fight it, because if we don't prepare for it, we may end up fighting it. Um, and, you know, and we need to prepare for, you know, a nuclear war because we need to have a robust nuclear deterrent. Otherwise, you know, we, we would be vulnerable. Um, and so, you know, these high, like, nuclear war or a major war with China or Russia or some country like that is probably very unlikely, but we have to prepare for it. And, um, but, you know, this kind of lower-end conflict and lower-end strikes, I mean, you know, I think those are, those are probably going to be more likely, and we're going to see more of it, uh, just because it's easier to do and the risks are lower. Countries can kind of engage in this kind of conflict uh, you know, if they can do it safely, um, then we're gonna, they're going to engage in it. So you're going to see more of it. Um, it's not the future of warfare, but I think you're going to see more of it. You know, you see it more frequently. It's kind of like what we used to say. You know, I used to do, you know, before I, before I worked on this study, I had a previous life where I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan and I worked on counterterrorism, counterinsurgency with the Marines and everything. And what I used to always tell them was, you know, you can prepare for the higher end warfare and you have to prepare for it but where your forces are actually going to be employed in actual operations and actual conflict is going to be at that lower end. So we're, we're conducting strikes in Iraq and Syria right now. You know, that's where the Navy's conducting strikes. That's where the Air Force is conducting strikes. And that's where the pilots are cutting their teeth. Those are the active contingency operations that we're fighting. But it's at the lower end. It's against insurgents and you know, sort of terrorist groups and so forth like that. And that's where our forces are going to be fighting. That's where they're going to be employed on a day-to-day -day basis, more likely. Uh, but at the same time, they have to continue to be prepared and to be ready uh, against these higher-end contingencies because it's that preparation that, that is the linchpin of our deterrent and actually prevents us from ever actually having to fight those conflicts in the first place. So. Very much so. Putting the U.S. aside, um, as you just mentioned, say, like in the case of, of Syria and Iraq, um, the idea of non-state actors being involved in for instance, the 2001 attacks on the India's parliament um, that was perpetrated by militant groups um, known to be supported by Pakistan. So the idea of these non-state actors, can they increase the risk of nuclear countries engaging in war? So looking at, of, like, of course, the India-Pakistan issue, um, and then broader in the broader sense as well, how much do non-state actors influence the countries that possess these weapons? Well, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, I think that 
Well, I mean, let's begin with the with the 2001 Parliament attack. I mean, if you if you look at what happened there, it was kind of a consortium of a couple of different terrorist groups that had been fighting in Kashmir, an Indian part of Kashmir, and they'd had they were supported in various points in time by the Pakistani military and Pakistani intelligence. Um, and then they conducted this attack against India's parliament in October 2001. They nearly wiped out all of India's leadership. And that was a big deal for India. I mean, that is an existential threat to her country. I and mean, if its leadership can be wiped out like that. Um, so they had to respond. And they thought that Pakistani intelligence may have been involved in the attack, but they weren't sure. And it's not like it was a sure thing. They weren't quite certain, but they knew the Pakistani government had a long-standing relationship with these groups. But these groups could have been acting independently. They could have been acting at the behest of the Pakistani leadership. Or they could have been acting on the behest of some part of Pakistani intelligence that was compartmentalized and was acting in some sort of rogue way. or you know, Any number of things could have happened, but they weren't quite sure, but they had to respond. And, and so it almost led to the, so the Indian army mobilized along the border with Pakistan. And they threatened to, to attack Pakistan unless Pakistan did something about these groups. And so it almost led to a war between the two countries, conventionally, which could have easily escalated to a nuclear conflict because, you know, the Pakistani uh, leadership was saying, well, if you, if you take one step across our border, we're going to use our nuclear weapons. And so it was a, it was a real, a very serious danger. And, um, and it began with this terrorist attack against India's parliament. But that attack was of uncertain attribution. I mean, was, it, was Pakistan responsible or not responsible? No one was ever 100% clear on that, and the evidence kind of was was ambiguous. And so some people have some people have argued, some people have said about that attack that maybe these groups carried out that attack because they wanted to instigate a war between the two countries. You know, so that's a possibility as well. You know, um, and so a lot of people when they look at what's going on in the Indian subcontinent and in Pakistan's going full throttle with this nuclear program, and India's kind of developing further. Uh, with its nuclear weapons program, but more importantly, getting all these precision weapons and all this kind of stuff, you know, the, the, the tensions in India and Pakistan are just as bad as they ever were, and the, the threat of war is, is probably as strong as it ever was. These terrorist groups are still there. So, you know, if somebody wanted to cause a war between these nuclear powers, it's not beyond the realm of possibility. You know, so, and some people say that about, you know, the 9-11 attacks by Osama bin Laden, you know, that, you know, really his main goal for that, those strikes was to get America into this big war in the Middle East and in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. They would inflame, you know, the Muslim world and would get, tie America down and all these conflicts around the world, which is actually exactly what happened. And so when you look back on hindsight, you think, wow, was that his intention? Well, maybe it was. And so, you know, uh, the, the thing about a really bad terrorist attack that's really high profile and, and really just scares a lot of people is that it can spur a country into acting militarily. It can force a country, especially a democracy that's, that's beholden to public opinion. You know, when that public opinion is inflamed by an attack like the 9-11 strikes or the attack on India's parliament, a country feels sometimes like it has to act militarily, it has to do something, and that can lead to a war. And if that's against a country that has nuclear weapons, then that creates threats of nuclear conflict. But it all may have begun with a terrorist attack by some group that may have been acting independently. And in, 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 in India may know that, Pakistan may know that, the whole world may know that, but the, but the, the seriousness of the, ta- of the attack can nonetheless force, in, force um, a situation that could lead to a nuclear conflict. So, you know, it's, 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 you know, when you think about, like, the relationship between these terrorist groups and these big countries that have nuclear weapons, I mean, there's definitely a relationship there. 
Um, and it's definitely something to be, you know, really concerned about. So. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like, especially in the region of Pakistan, it's so involved. There are so many groups and there's so many ideas that, as you alluded to, some may have connections with the government or the police force or the military. And it almost seems like the borders of state and non-state actor tend to blend a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, they do, you know, and, um, you know, it seems so much simpler in the 1990s before the 9-11 attacks because, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was clear that Pakistan was, Pakistan was supporting all these groups and the whole world denied it, but India had absolutely no doubt. And so when there was a series of attacks, it was clear who was responsible. But then there was the 9-11 strikes, and, and, and we put all this pressure on Pakistan. We said, you can't do that anymore. You can't support all these insurgent groups and terrorist groups like, as an instrument of your foreign policy. You have to stop doing that. Uh, and you have to crack down on these groups. And so they kind of sort of changed their direction, and they started sort of going against all these groups. And so then it wasn't really clear anymore, like, is Pakistan with these groups or against these groups? And so then when an attack occurs uh, later, like in 2008, when, uh, when there was those attacks in Mumbai, you know, which were really bad, then we're not really clear. It's like, well, the Pakistan isn't really, like, allied with these groups anymore. It says it's cracking down on them, yet we have all this evidence that they're supporting them in various ways. So then it's all very ambiguous. You're not really quite certain anymore. And then, like you said, I mean, all these different groups that exist within Pakistan, any one of them could have been responsible for the attack. Who's really responsible and what's their relationship with the government? Um, it's very, very unsettling. And then, you know, some of these some of these groups, these people are really, they're very extreme in their views. And they know that, you know, a war has a way of making populations even more extreme. So there's a certain incentive then for them to cause a war, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's not beyond the possibility that they could do it. Um, and it's very difficult for the international community and for countries to sort of err on the side of caution and be responsible when they're victims of these very serious terrorist attacks and they know that there's a history of a relationship with a certain state. It makes it very hard, very difficult. So attribution is, um, is a very, like, difficult thing. And, and, we, and, we, and we face that, I mean, even if you could kind of, even if you were to think about, like, say, the Russians in the Ukraine right now, you know, there were, it's pretty clear the Russians are supporting these proxies, you know, but, if, but they went and shot down that, uh, was it a Malaysian uh, airliner, right? Well, right. It was, 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 did Vladimir Putin order the shooting down of a, of a, of a civilian airliner? Well, probably not, um, but it was shot down by a sophisticated air defense, by a sophisticated service-to-air missile that probably came from Russia. Um, was it Russia's intention that that occur, and was it an accident? Um, you know, and so, you know, the president, our President Obama faced a difficult situation at that time. What do I do about this? Do I hold Russia responsible? Do I hold these little green men proxy responsible for this? Or do I accept their explanation that it was an accident? Um, it, it, it becomes very, very difficult when you have these sort of non-state groups that have serious military capability, like is the situation in Ukraine, or whether they, or they can carry out very serious terrorist attacks, like which is the case in India. Uh, becomes becomes very dicey. And then you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier in the talk, but I'm curious as to how the idea of nations that are combating each other, and of course your study is North Korea and Pakistan, but you can answer this in a broader broader picture as well, 
But combating nations that have nuclear weapons capabilities already, how much of that draws these countries to work on developing even greater nuclear weapons powers? So almost an arms race of sorts. Do you see this happening? Oh, that's also a good question. <laughs> that's kind of like that's kind of like the law of unintended consequences or second order effects, right? I mean, you want to you want to stop a country from getting nuclear weapons, or you want to slow its nuclear program. So you put all this pressure on them, or make all these threats, and that just increases the incentives for them to get nuclear weapons. So that's you know, say critics of you know the sanctions against Iran, you know, would say that they would say, well, you make all these threats on Iran, and you you make all these implied threats to strike their uh, their um, sort of incipient nuclear weapons uh, infrastructure, well, that just increases the incentive for the Iranians to say, well, we really need nuclear weapons so that we can put an end to these threats against our country uh, with a robust nuclear deterrent. And once they have a, a, a really credible nuclear deterrent, I don't see how we can credibly threaten strikes against them or even how Israel can credibly threaten strikes against them. So there's that. That's true. Uh, and then, but then once the once countries get nuclear weapons, right, once they cross the nuclear threshold and they get what we call like a credible nuclear deterrent, which means, you know, pretty good nuclear devices that, you know, that, that have a high enough yield and, 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 and that can be delivered via missiles or aircraft. Once they kind of have that um, and they can, you know, then that kind of banner into a different category of a country that actually has a, a robust and accepted nuclear capability. And then, and then it kind of gets kind of difficult to say because some countries like, like Pakistan said when they got nuclear weapons in 1998, we just want enough nuclear weapons to have a minimal nuclear deterrent, you know, just so we can hold parts of India at risk to make it just really dangerous for them to do anything. Just a couple of bombs, deliverable via aircraft, and that's it. You know, no arms race like the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And then the China has said that as well. So they tested their first nuclear device, and I want to say... 1964 or something, 1962, can't remember, early 1960s. And since then, they've had a pretty small nuclear deterrent. And they've said that continually throughout. We want a minimal nuclear deterrent. We want a minimal nuclear deterrent. And the North Koreans kind of say that as well. We want just enough to be safe. And that's true, but then once countries kind of cross and you get threshold, you see them kind of over time moving forward in the nuclear program. So while the Pakistanis in 1998 said they wanted a minimal nuclear deterrent, they now have the fastest growing nuclear arsenal in the world. And they're exploring short, medium-range missiles. They're, they're looking at um, uh, low-yield nuclear uh, warheads that can go on short-range missiles. That's kind of like what we call tactical nuclear weapons. And, and in the Pakistan-India case, this is pretty scary in terms of how they think about using those weapons. Um, so they're building a lot of nuclear weapons, a lot of warheads, a lot of missile material, exploring all kinds of different kinds of missiles. Um, and they're looking at undersea uh, capabilities, looking at putting nuclear... Uh, on cruise missiles on their on their uh, surface ships, things like that. So while they said they wanted a little little itty bitty nuclear deterrent, now they've got a lot more than that. And 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 we don't know where that's going to end, how far that's going to go. And and the, and the, and China is going a lot slower compared to Pakistan, but they're looking now at nuclear uh, armed submarines, and they're certainly moving a lot further forward when it comes to their nuclear uh, weapons capabilities as well. And then India also, India much more clearly, incredibly said in 1998, well, we're going to have a small nuclear deterrent. We don't believe in nuclear weapons. We think it's immoral, but we're going to get them anyway, but then we're going to talk against you know, nuclear armament, and we're going to have a small nuclear deterrent, and we'll just have a little bit enough, because we're India, and we're a peaceful country, and so on and so forth. 
well, you know, they're testing medium-range, long-range missiles, and they're looking at a nuclear triad, including nuclear submarines. I mean, they're years away from ever getting there, but they're looking at it, they're investing in it, and they're building more nuclear warheads, you know. So countries have this way of once they get nuclear weapons, they think they're only one of few, but then over time it's kind of like, well, let's build some more and let's build some more and let's build some more. Um, and, and it sort of gets into a, kind of a nuclear arms race. But it doesn't seem like, you know, you're going to get, you know, in Asia the sort of nuclear arms race that we had between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, where it was just all about nuclear parity all the time. It was just, there was no upper limit. We had to have more than the Soviets. The Soviets had to have more than us until it became completely insane. I don't think you're going to quite see that kind of arms race. I think what you're going to see is countries like Pakistan, India, China, North Korea trying to seek a, a threshold where they believe they have a credible nuclear deterrent. So that means a diverse array of missiles, maybe submarines, aircraft, enough nuclear warheads that they feel they can't all be blown up in a first strike. And so they're kind of moving more, more towards what they think is kind of a robust deterrent, but they don't seem to be talking as much about parity as the United States and the Soviet Union did during the Cold War. So there's at least some, there's at least some reason to believe it's going to reach a threshold and, and won't go too much further. Um, but there is a certain arms race dynamic going on there. It's just not quite like it was during the Cold War. Very interesting. There's one section in the report which I'd really like to quote because when I read it, I sort of sat back and thought, ooh, okay. Um, and I'm going to quote it. It says, while violent provocations resulting in potentially escalatory military crises may not be very likely in the short term, our research suggests that they could occur further down the road. So I was wondering why this is the case and if you could discuss this a little bit further because it has a slight scary tinge to it <laughs> when you read that. Well, yeah. Well, I wasn't I wasn't intending to frighten anyone, but you know when you're when you're when you're like writing about nuclear weapons, that's always that's always kind of part of it. That's that's part of getting people interested in nuclear weapons, scaring scaring people a little bit, just a little okay. bit, just enough to get them interested. Well, that that, um, that that sentence right there really makes you stop and think. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, yes. That was kind of a finding that came from well. Because if you look at it, when we when we when we looked in the cases of um, you know what happened in the Korean Peninsula and the Indian subcontinent, you know Pakistan would do these things testing India's kind of red lines and boundaries, and the North Koreans were doing these things to test South Korea and the United States. And so how did they respond? Well, initially it was kind of like, well, we don't know what to do. I mean, we we should be cautious because this is a nuclear situation. But then as it happened more and more, you you've seen India and South Korea starting to move forward towards much more offensively oriented uh, military postures. So they're requiring the military doctrines that allow them to respond militarily much more quickly. And they're maintaining a higher level of readiness in, in some situations. And they're acquiring certain kind of precision weapons that allow them to sort of respond immediately in the event of a small attack of some kind. Um, so, you know, India, for example, has developed what is called Cold Start. It started with what was called Cold Start. And there's a new military doctrine from India that allowed them to mobilize their ground forces much more quickly than had ever been the case in the past. And this led to like, all these reorganizations in their army uh, from these kind of more defensively oriented holding corps to these strike corps. So that, you know, if Pakistan launched some limited insurgent into Kashmir in the future, or there's some really bad terrorist attack, they would have these offensively oriented units that could strike immediately. And they've changed, altered some of their command and control arrangements as well to enable an immediate response so that there would be no delay. There's no mo period of mobilization. There's no period of getting in position. There's just, we order the, we order the attack and it happens immediately. 
Um, and then you look at what happened to South Korea, you know, when, when there were these early provocations by North Korea, the South Koreans didn't know what to do. And so they didn't really respond. They didn't really do anything. And then um, the South Korean leadership came under a lot of pressure uh, from from their population, saying, "Well, you didn't do anything at all." This, you know, and and then the, and then there were these provocations later. So people said, "Well, that was because you didn't do anything. We need to do any, we need to do something. We need to respond somehow, or the North Koreans are going to keep doing these things to us." Um, and so South Korea also has developed um, what's called proactive deterrence, which is it's more kind of you know, Indian, sort of the version of India's cold start which is, again, a much more offensively oriented, forward-leaning kind of military posture, which are changes to their command and control arrangements so that you know, the leadership of North, uh, South Korea can launch an attack much more quickly, they can scramble their aircraft to strike more quickly, changes to their rules of engagement that allow their aircraft to engage targets much more quickly so that they can respond if they're attacked. Um, and so, so I guess the, the point is, is that India and South Korea have, you know, in response to these provocations by their neighbors, have pursued much more offensively oriented military postures. And I think to some extent that's frightened leaders in North Korea and Pakistan to some extent and has, has led them to, to pause a little bit. Um, and it seems to have had some kind of deterrent effect on these countries because you haven't seen as, nearly as many kind of provocations and offensive actions from these countries since India and South Korea pursued these more offensively oriented doctrines. Now what's the correlation? Not, sh not completely clear, but it seems that's what's happening. And so we think, okay, so in the short term, that seems to indicate that like the Pakistanis and the North Koreans are probably going to hold off on these actions for a while. But then you'll also think that the Pakistan, especially, and North Korea are moving pretty, pretty fast forward in their nuclear uh, weapons capabilities. And as they cross these new thresholds in terms of their capabilities, and the nuclear weapons become more kind of robust, you know, well, that gives us reason to think that they may have more confidence further down the road to sort to start probing their neighbors a little bit more when they think that they're they're further and more safe behind their nuclear deterrence. So that's what kind of led to that to that kind of conclusion of well, in the short term, we think that Pakistan, North Korea, countries like this are going to be a little more cautious. But as their nuclear weapons develop and they cross those thresholds, well, we think that you know they're going to be a little bit more confident in the future, and we should be prepared for that. So we shouldn't be complacent about it. So to kind of bring this talk to a conclusion. I was wondering if we could look at how the U.S. can play in the de-escalation or mitigation of the threat of countries possessing nuclear weapons, and how can the international community also play in this role of, whether it's a mediator or helping in de-escalating situations that could get out of hand? Yeah, yeah. well, and that's a really good point because, you know, the United States has to prepare you know, to be the victims of these sorts of strikes. But maybe the more important role of the United States to some extent is preventing, you know, countries like India or South Korea from responding too rashly. And, you know, we have a lot, the United States has a lot of leverage and influence over India. India is pretty much an ally, and we have a lot of influence over them. We have a very uh, significant economic relationship with them. Um, and with South Korea, is actually a full-on ally, and we are actually part of the command and control structure in which you know South Korea utilizes its forces against North Korea in, in various contingencies. So we can come in and, and tell the South Koreans, you know, you know, we should we can give them advice about you know how to arrange their command and control and how to think about these contingencies and how to think about escalation control. We can encourage them to and and sort of compel them to be a little bit more sort of responsible to some extent. Um, and when a, when a crisis occurs, you know, there's a role for the United States to step into those crises as, you know, to some extent an objective third party, but also as a world superpower. 
to say, you know, we're going to have to encourage you to, to engage in restraint in this type of situation. Um, so, you know, so the South Koreans are pushing really far forward in this, in this, in their posture. Um, and, um, and they could, you know, go off the reservation. And it's, it's their relationship with us and our influence over them that may sort of, you know, push them in a more, um, more sort of responsible direction when it comes to comes to their military posture, and the same thing with India. So, like in 2001, when there was that big terrorist attack on India's parliament, and India was threatening war against Pakistan, and Pakistan threatened to use nuclear weapons and all that sort of thing, that was scary to a lot of people. That frightened the whole world. And at that time, there was Ambassador Blackwell was our was the United States ambassador in Delhi at the time, and uh, and he he basically you know put as much pressure as he could on the leaders in New Delhi, not in Pakistan but in India, to say you need to back off. Um, you need to, and you need to, you need to pull, you need to pull your forces back. You need to de-escalate this crisis. Um, and the Indians pushed back, and actually the ambassador withdrew all non-essential American personnel uh, from India, and that that led to a flight of all this foreign direct investment, U.S. and, and uh, Western foreign direct investment out of India, and it really hit their economy really hard and hurt them pretty bad. Um, and eventually they kind of de-escalated. So there's this kind of these strong-arm tactics sometimes that we can use in a really serious crisis to force a big power like India or a, a country like South Korea to just to just hold off and utilize restraint if we think that they're going too far. So yeah, there's a big role for the United States to play mediator in these conflicts to encourage communication between the two countries through track two uh, diplomacy and interactions. But also in a crisis, we, we can step in and, and be the force for... Um, you know, for, for de-escalation and for, you know, reasonable actions and, and, and so on and so forth. So. so my last question really are, or really is, um, what are the lessons that we've learned from this report in the sense of looking towards the future? I know that's kind of a broad question, but, you know, it's looking towards the future and, and what this report brings to light. Sure. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a very broad report, so broad questions are good. I mean... I guess, I guess in, the more, in the most general level, it's, you know, we just need to think a little bit more about escalation, um, and we need to think in, when it comes to the development of our war plans and our concepts of operation, the kinds of capabilities that we develop, when it comes to the um, education and training of our military officers, you know, they need to, to understand deterrence a little bit better. They need to understand escalation a little bit better. You know, we, it's, it's been a long time since the Cold War ended, and our military officers and senior leaders and heads of joint commands really had to think about nuclear weapons and deterrence and escalation. But we're entering into a new era of conflict where, you know, they need to understand this a little bit better. They need to think about it more um, so that we don't get ourselves into a, a pretty bad situation. Um, and I think just in general, we need to think about, you know, the future of warfare, that, you know, our adversaries are going to look for our vulnerabilities and if our vulnerabilities are at that lower end of the warfare spectrum where we think we can't respond, but a country like Russia can, um, well, that's a vulnerability for us. And it's a vulnerability for other status quo powers that, that, that face, you know, aggressive adversaries that seek to change boundaries through aggressive actions. And so we need to think about ways that we can deter that and stop that. Um, and, and we need to think about that, not just a major war and not just a nuclear war and not just insurgency in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, but this kind of lower end of conventional warfare. We need to think about it, understand it better, um, and develop ways to deal with it. So. Well, I highly recommend our listeners to read the report for themselves, and we will post it, um, a link to this report 
underneath this um, audio. So do read it because it's a good read. And I want to thank you, Dr. Meyer Lee, for being on the show and writing this great report. Well, well, thank you so much, Chelsea. I really, really enjoyed the conversation and really great questions. And so, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for the, the shout out for our report. You know, we're analysts and so we always like our work to be read. So that's great. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And I look forward to reading more because, um, so on to the next one. <laughs> Get working. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good luck. Thank you.